sermon, we're going to uh, dive into uh, Luke 10, uh, verses 25 through 37. So if you guys want to grab your Bibles, um, I used to say what page number uh, they were in the, pew num- in the pew Bibles, but now we've got two different size pew Bibles, and so it's a couple different page numbers. But Luke 10, New Testament, uh, once you get there, you'll realize what passage this is, because this is probably one of the most um, uh, well-known passages in Scripture. This is the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And it's a unique passage today because it's, like I said, one that everybody knows, but I think, honestly, it's probably one that few fully understand. Um, There are uh, podcasts, uh, there is legislation, both in the U.S. and in Canada. There are entire organizations, entire nonprofits that have co-opted this name, the Good Samaritan. Everybody knows of it, and everybody has a basic idea of what this parable communicates. And I want to talk about it today because in our culture, it's not uncommon, I think, to love the idea that you love people and are their benefactor rather than to actually love actual people themselves. So that's why I want to talk about it. I want to look into these words and I want to go past just the basic uh, understanding of, yes, it is good to help somebody in need on the side of the road and see really what is Jesus trying to communicate to the people that he was speaking to in this narrative, but also to his church and to us today. Um, You might have seen or uh, watched or even seen pictures of uh, politicians visiting a a soup kitchen uh, most of the time for a photo op, and then it's not uncommon, I won't, you know, there there are good politicians out there, but a lot of times it is for a photo op, and then they bail shortly after that. And so it's it's not just politicians. We act this way sometimes as well. I think we can think of ourselves as loving and as good people, but often when it comes down to it, we can reject actual opportunities to love those people. And so Jesus points this out through the the use of this parable in Luke 10. Uh, So if you guys got it open there, we will read through it. Starting at verse 25. It says this, And behold, a lawyer stood up and put him, that's Jesus, to the test saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and, uh, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and he saw him, and he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds pouring on oil and wine, and then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took two denarii, and he gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Let's, let's pray. God, each time we open your word, um, 
We are struck by its relevance. We are struck by its potency. We are struck by its power. And so I pray that now, as we look into these words of wisdom from you and this call to action, God, that we would be a church that demonstrates the love of Christ, that receives the love of Christ, and then that shows that to others in need. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So in this passage, in this interaction, I think there are three things that are addressed, and I want to address uh, these three things with you here this morning. The first is a man, the second is a mandate, and the third is a motivation. So that's the alliteration, a man, a mandate, and a motivation. And the first is the man, and by the man, I mean this lawyer. It says that there is a lawyer who stands up to ask Jesus a question. And when we think of lawyer, we have a certain uh, picture in our minds. This is not a civil law expert, but rather this is a religious law expert. So a religious lawyer. He was a religious scholar, a scribe, or a Pharisee. And he would have, at this time, a guy like this would have had large portions, if not the entire entirety of the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, the Mosaic Law, memorized. And this isn't just cool stories of, of battles in, in, in uh, Genesis or Joshua or something like that. This is, this is also like Leviticus and Deuteronomy. I mean, these are, these are, this is the law. And so this man would have studied every word of those first five books for the entirety of his life. Now, this lawyer stands up to ask Jesus a question. He says in verse 25, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And so if we pause, that's not a bad question. He's asking, in fact, a question of utmost importance. What he's asking about is really the kingdom of God. Uh, Throughout uh, this section in Luke, Jesus is teaching on what it means to inherit the kingdom, to be a part of the kingdom, to enter the kingdom. And this is really another way of kind of getting at that concept. What is it What does it look like to enter that kingdom? How do I get in? How do I inherit that eternal life? Every person needs to ask about that pathway to eternal life and where it is found. It's it's what I pray that my children one day ask me. So this is a good question, but there's an issue with it. This man is asking it in a different way than I hope Cal comes to me one day and asks, how do I inherit eternal life? He's asking it with... uh, different undertones. It says that in verse 25, he stood up to put Jesus to the test. That's the key. Put Jesus to the test. What does that mean? Well, test here is the same word that is used when Jesus is wandering in the desert uh, for 40 40 days. Do you recall that passage? Jesus is wandering in the desert after being baptized for 40 days. He's tempted by the devil. And in response to the devil, what he says is, you shall not put the Lord God to the test. That's the same word. You shall not do that. And this is the motivation that this lawyer has in standing up and asking Jesus this question. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? He's testing him. The very thing that God says you shall not do. And so there's a difference. Jesus recognizes it, as should we. There's a difference between a genuine, I would call it maybe like a genuine seeker or a genuine inquiry versus a hostile inquirer. Somebody who's asking you a question, to, to, to they're hunting for that gotcha moment. They're asking a question. They already have preformed thoughts in their mind. They're not actually looking for the answer. What they're, what they're doing is they're trying to catch you up, trying to trip you up. And that's what this lawyer is doing, trying to trap tr- Jesus, and he doesn't like it. So he's approaching, he's approaching him as, uh, as an antagonist, in pure intent. He wants to debate And so this is why Jesus has this unique response. He says in verse 26, What is written in the law, how do you read it? 
And the man answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will, leave, and you will live. So what Jesus does is he puts the, puts the question back on him. The man comes to Jesus, asks him, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus goes back and he says, well, what does the law say? You're the law expert. This is your area of expertise. This is your domain. I know what you're doing here. So why don't you answer this question? And the man gives a good answer. In fact, he refers to, to Deuteronomy 6, 5, as well as Jesus' own words. You shall love the Lord your God with everything that you've got. And then on top of that, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, okay, do that. He's about to show the man that he is going to fall short of these commands. Elsewhere in Scripture, it says all the law and, and, the, and the prophets are summed up in this. You shall love the Lord your God with everything that you have, and then you shall love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets are kind of summed up and wrapped up in, in, in that phrase. And what he's trying to do is, is show this lawyer, you don't have what it takes. You're, go you're going to fall short of this. So he knows this man isn't being genuine in that he also doesn't have the motivations that are pure. What the lawyer really wants is to debate. He does not want to have his heart changed. And so while it's within Jesus' power to win the debate, that's not what he's after. He's more concerned with winning souls. And so young, restless, and reformed, you should listen to this. Not as interested in debate, more interested in winning souls. Abstract truths generally don't become real to someone until they are tied to some sort of sensory experience. Then it becomes real through some form of demonstration. Hence, Jesus' use of parables. This is why Jesus used parables so much. He's after our hearts, not to win a debate. And this, this should be our motivation when we are talking to people as well. I'm all for apologetics and, and that kind of stuff, but we are not... Uh, to go out into the world and to, to prove people wrong, to show them how wrong they are. We are to win their souls and welcome them into a family. That's an extremely different approach. So by telling this man to simply go fulfill the law in its entirety, he's drawing out of the man's heart what's really there. That's what he's going for. And so in verse 29, the lawyer's heart is exposed. This is what he says. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? Now the man's heart becomes clear. Now his cards are on the table. His paradigm of salvation is exposed. He already has a belief about what it takes to inherit eternal life. He already has a method and an approach to God, and it is to white-knuckle it, to do it himself, to justify himself. That was his desire all along. So we get this, this picture of the lawyer and Jesus, uh, self-righteous, self-righteousness versus the righteousness of Christ, or self-justification versus a free gift of grace, or limited, obligatory love versus the boundless and relentless love of God. This is the picture we have of this man and Jesus having this dialogue. And that's, this is why the the gospel is so radical to our ears. We, in our, in our fallen nature, we are so prone to want to do it ourselves. From the beginning in the garden till now, we are whispered this lie that God is not needed. He's not needed. Everything in life is gained through hard work and commitment, so why should the spiritual life be any different? 
this lawyer and many of us today operate, even though we know what is true, we operate as if becoming right with God hinges upon our efforts, that our effort leads to justification and that somehow God doesn't factor into that equation at all. He's maybe like a, a cosmic spectator who applauds when we succeed or condemns us when we fail, but he's really just watching. He doesn't play a part in our own justification or sanctification. We desire to justify ourselves, and that was the approach of this man. So what happens when we take that approach is that we inevitably, this is what has to happen, that we have to look for ways to lower the standard, to, to lower the bar, to keep justification within our reach. And so a way to do that is to, to then kind of explain away or to make excuses for our unwillingness or our inability to, to listen to God's words and, and to really follow the path that he has outlined for us. Indeed, to justify our actions or our behaviors. That's the only way to lower the standard. This man does that when he asks, well, who is my neighbor? Surely you can't mean everybody. You can't mean, you can't mean pagans. You can't mean tyrants. You can't mean murderers. If you do, that's a standard that's way too far out of my reach. So let's put limitations around that. And apart from an understanding of the gospel, this is the only strategy. One way the Pharisees used to uh, try and do this, to kind of redefine this, this idea of loving your neighbor, is they would go back to a passage in Leviticus 19, verses 18, and they, they would try and reinterpret it. So this is what that passage says. I think it'll be up there. It says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And what they had done is they had, they had taken this passage and they were interpreting the latter phrase, love your neighbor as yourself, in light of the former phrase, sons of your own people. Effectively lowering the standard. And that, that gave them an excuse for, for racism and for prejudice. So what they were doing is they were taking the more narrow category, sons of your own people, and they were putting that on top as the umbrella that everything else had to fall under. So, so loving your neighbor had to mean only within the sons of your own people rather than the other way around. What this passage really means is you should love everybody. And if you should love everybody, if you should love your neighbor, well, then certainly you should love the sons of your own people. So when the man asks, who is my neighbor, we need to understand that the real question that lies be beneath it is, who am I obligated to love and then who am I free to ignore? Who do I have to love just to make sure that I'm justified, just to make sure that I'm safe, and then who am I free just to kind of take, take steps back from and avoid? Oh, we have this hard posture all the time. I do, at least. I know, I know that we, we want limitations on, on who we love. It's easy to love our friends and our family, but what about other people? What about people that disagree with us? What about people that are difficult? What about people that drain us or... Uh, eat up our time. We want limitations on when, so we might be okay helping uh, when it doesn't inconvenience us or showing love to someone when it, it doesn't inconvenience us, but that's almost never true. The older I get, the, the, more, the more I realize it's all inconvenient. <laughs> Every time I love someone, is it, it's never convenient to, to take care of uh, my kids when they have an accident on the floor. That's never convenient, but it's something you do out of love something I do because I care for them. And then we want limitations on how much. 
the biz- biggest excuse that I find myself giving is I just can't afford it. You know, I, I, I've given this much time or effort or, or money or whatever it might be, and that's as, that's as much. You know, I, I, just, I just can't afford more than that. But then I will use that to justify avoiding or kind of averting my eyes from, from certain things that I know might be difficult to deal with. And so Jesus is, I mean, he's Jesus, right? He's God. He's perceiving all of this in the man. And the way that he answers this man is with a parable. And this parable is one that ends with a mandate for the man and for you and I. And so this is point two. In verse 30, Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem, and almost certainly this man was a Jew, given the audience that he was speaking to and the fact that he was speaking to a Jewish lawyer. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. I want to talk about um, the Jericho Road just for a second. I, uh, I think I, there's actually going to be a picture. Trevor, do we have that? Lance never does this, but I had a picture of it. I wanted to show you kind of what this place was like. It's a real place. The Jericho, like Jerusalem, Jericho, real places. There's a road between them. And so it wasn't that Jesus was just making this up. And um, when, I was, when I was in seminary, I took a, a parables class Tuesday nights from 6 to 9 p.m. by a guy named Dr. Kistemacher. He was a sweet old man who had been studying the parables his entire life, and he was very big on the setting. He, he was very big on, you need to know the setting of a, of a parable to really kind of understand what Jesus was communicating here. And so this is following in, in the ways that he taught. But that Jericho Road was a 17-mile stretch that wound through rocky, rocky terrain. And... Um, it started in Jerusalem, ended at Jericho with a 3,300-foot th- uh, elevation change. And so that, to us living in Florida, the flattest state in the nation, makes almost zero sense unless you have any, any hiking experience or you've been out west or to the Appalachians at all. But last night, Allie and I just randomly just happened to, we were folding, or she was folding laundry, and I was working on the sermon. We had a uh, documentary on, on some rock climbers that climbed El Capitan. And so has anybody been to Yosemite and seen that? It's a, I mean, I've never been, but even just seeing the pictures and, and watching this documentary, it's amazing. That thing is a sheer granite wall that just shoots up into the sky, and it's only 3,000 feet high. And so this has even more eleva- elevation gain than that. And so this was an incredibly treacherous place. Um, and, Jesus, and in Jesus' time, it was actually given a nickname. It was called the Path or the Ascent of Blood. Is virtually uninhabited, constant threat of, of robbery. This is where the bad guys hung out, okay? So this is the setting that Jesus puts these, these characters, this priest and this Levi, this Jew, and this Samaritan in. And then in verse th- uh, 31 and 32, he introduces uh, the priest and the Levite. He says, now by chance a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. So as you might guess, both the priests and the Levite, these were religious men. Priests were, they were of the, tri- the, the tribe of, of Levi, but they were specific descendants of Aaron, Moses' brother. And so Levites, uh, were, Levites were also I- employed in the temple, but they were more, um, I guess, like assistants to the priest. Uh, so you could consider this, I don't know, you could consider it... Uh, um, Lance and Brian for, for a while, <laughs> a priest and a Levite, p- professionals, professionals in religiosity at the time. Um, 
Anyway, they were similar in, in stature to, to this law expert who, who was asking Jesus this initial question. And they would, they would have been well-versed in Scripture just as the lawyer was. They recited what's called the Shema. You guys know the Shema? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. This is De, uh, Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. They recited that at least two times a day once in the morning and once in the evening. And the lawyer would have known this. And so when Jesus is saying, hey, a priest and a Levite are coming along and they see this guy, you know, on this Jericho road in need and they completely avoid him, they cross over to the other side and, and, and leave him to die, what's happening here? It's, it's praise, praise of God, love the Lord your God with everything that you've got in the morning, love the Lord with everything you've got at night, and then sandwiched in between that is this cruel neglect of an image bearer of God lying in need on the side of the road. It's this stark contrast, this cruel irony. Finally, and last in the parable, along comes this Samaritan in 33 through 35. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and he gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever you spend, I'll repay you when I come back. Commentator uh, Kent Hughes says this about the tension between Judea and Samaria, Jews and Samaritans. It says the hatred between these two groups went back over 400 years and centered around racial purity. Because while the Jews had kept their purity during the Babylonian captivity, that, that meant that they only married other Jews, the Samaritans had lost theirs by intermarrying with the Assyrian invaders. In the Jews' eyes, the Samaritans were compromising mongrels. The rabbis had been preaching, let no man eat the bread of the Samaritans, for he who eats their bread is he who eats swine's flesh. And if you know anything about uh, Old Temple, Jerusalem, that was, uh, that was a bad thing. You do not eat Downing pork. So the ultimate insult came in the arsenic-laced Jewish prayer that concluded, and do not remember the Samaritans in the, in the resurrection. Add to this the fact that in Jesus' day, Jewish travelers had been murdered in Samaria, Samaria and that some Samaritans had defiled the temple with human bones, and you can begin to imagine the shock of Jesus introducing a Samaritan, not as the villain, but as the hero. And here's the irony that, that a man that is traditionally this enemy of the Jews who supposedly walked away from the Lord and compromised himself, he's the one who demonstrates Christ-like love when the two servants of the Lord's temple who are supposed to be professionals at stuff like this, they turn their backs on him. And so we ask, what about the Samaritans' limitations? Remember we talked about we, we, we oftentimes find ourselves wanting to justify not helping because of something some limitation that we put on who we, who we should love or how much time we have or how much effort we can give. The Samaritan evidently didn't have any. He, hel he helped a Jew, traditional enemy to the Samaritans, when he helped on the, the Jericho Road, which wasn't just traveled for fun. So this man wasn't just out. He didn't have like a bunch of free time in his day. He would have only been traveling on this road if he had a very specific purpose, a very specific place to get, and this was the only way to get there. He had to go through it. But he stopped. He spent time on the man. He put himself in harm's way. He extended a great deal of effort to provide help. 
And there was no limit, limit on how much either that he would give. It says that he gave wine, oil, medical care, money. He even gave an IOU. He said, I'll do whatever he needs and I'll pay you more when, uh, when I come back this way. He saw it through to the end. So he was willing to give this compassionate, costly care to the man. He doesn't just give him a little something to get him off his back and to, to move on and to clear his conscience, which is oftentimes you know, what I find myself doing. He, his motivation is other-centered, not self-centered. And what he's showing is that neighborly love knows no boundaries. That's what the Samaritan demonstrates. So at the end of all this, Jesus ends with a variation of the man's question. Did you notice this? In verse 36 and 37. Jesus asked him a question, but it's not the same as what the lawyer asked him at the beginning. The lawyer, remember, asked him, who is my neighbor? And Jesus asks him this, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. See, all through, all through this story, we expect this question coming through the end. As we're reading it, as we're listening to it, we're, we're expecting Jesus to ask this question. So was the man who fell among robbers, was he a neighbor or not? But that's not what Jesus asks. Rather, he says, who proved to be a neighbor? The identity of the man on the side of the road I- isn't even mentioned. Well, how come? That's because in this issue of whether he is to be loved or not, his identity doesn't matter. The problem is not with the neighbors. We should not call into question the character of the man in need. What's called into question is the heart of the lawyer. There's a problem with the lawyer. And that's what Jesus is pointing out. It's his character that is being judged, not the man's on the side of the road. And we we have this tendency to want to hold up a magnifying glass when we're trying to budget our time or whatever it is to try and figure out how much can we actually love people. We, We have this tendency to hold up a magnifying glass to find out who's worthy of it. To identify, well, who's my neighbor and who's not? You know, should we, should we really give this person this thing? Should we really not? But when we do that, what God is trying to show us is that actually what's happening is that magnifying glass has turned back on our own heart before the Lord. That's what he is concerned with. Remember, he's concerned with winning souls. And not just theirs, ours. He wants us to be transformed. He wants you to be transformed. And we get this backwards all the time. We want to judge other people's character. And we want to ask if we have to love certain categories of people, usually diffi- difficult people or, or people that see the world differently than us. But in the matter of showing them love, those categories don't matter because you've never met a non-neighbor in your life. And frankly, that's what this is teaching us. We have often in our minds uh, places reserved for categories of people that we just kind of label as them. People that are different than us, usually people that we've never met even, people that are n- not like us. And these, categor- uh, these characteristics uh, of that type of person is, is fertile soil for things like prejudice to grow. And prejudice is a great time saver. It, it allows us to form opinions without having to consider the facts, without having to gather reliable information, and often, heaven forbid, get it, getting to know them. And if we don't do these things, it's a whole lot easier just to be compassionless when, when we don't even interact with that, that type of person. So that way we can form op- opinions without empathy. We can make judgments without compassion. But N.T. Wright says this. Um, he says, no church, no Christian 
can remain content with easy definitions which allow us to watch most of the world lying dead on the side of the road. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. In uh, James 2, verses 14 through 17, uh, James is a great book. If, you, if you're curious about what does it look like uh, to have faith and works work together, uh, James is fantastic as it talks about what happens in our, in our heart when, when Jesus transforms us and makes us new, but how do, how do works factor into that? Because we, do, we don't believe, and Scripture doesn't teach, Jesus doesn't teach that this, this, this act of love saved the Samaritan, because doing good works isn't what saves us, but good works has a part in the equation. And so, uh, anyway, James says this, James two fourteen through 17, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of us says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So it's good to ask this question. Does this passage reinforce the lawyer's presupposition that we have to do something to gain eternal life? I say no, definitively no. We need to see that the sign of eternal life is different than the source of eternal life. So I think I've heard Tim Keller give this illustration before. You picture two trees, right? One is a fruitful tree. One is filled with foliage and green leaves and is bearing all sorts of fruit. The other one is dry and brown and empty. And if I was to say, look at these two trees, now which one is alive? You would say, well, surely the one that has fruit and then, you know, that has leaves and that's green, not the, not the dry and dead-looking one. But the fruit on the green tree isn't its source of life. It's just a sure sign that it has life and that it is alive. And that's how that works. The lawyer is asking about a way to life, but the parable of the Good Samaritan shows not a way to life, a way of life, a way of living, motivated, motivated by some other power. And so this is the third point. What is the motivation? What is that other power? How do, we, how do we love people in this self-sacrificial way? Well, to find the answer, we must ask a key question. Who's who in this parable? Who is who in this story? In every story, uh, I don't know about you, I mean, this is true of me at least, in every story that I read or, you know, movie that I watch or story that I hear, I, I have a tendency to read myself into it and, and kind of identify with certain characters. So we must ask that question. Who, who do we identify? Who would the lawyer have identified with? in this parable as Jesus is sharing this with him. And we'd be tempted to say the Samaritan, right? I mean, he's the hero. He's the good guy. We want to identify with him. We want to do, do what the Samaritan did. We want to be like him. But that would not have been what the lawyer was thinking. Certainly, the, this lawyer, who's an enemy of Samaritans, wouldn't have been identifying with the Samaritan in the story, right? So who, who would he have been uh, identifying with? Jesus chose a, a Samaritan as the hero of the story almost to force the lawyer, and I think us, to kind of identify with these other characters. And so in one way, we're the priest and the Levite. We ought to see ourselves as avoiding the opportunity to love as the priest and the Levite do. And in, a, and in identifying with them or recalling times that we've done similar things, what happens then is that our sin is confronted. And so... That is one truth that we can pull from this parable, that we are the priest and the Levite. This, this is us. We, we avoid opportunities to truly love people as Christ calls us to love people. And when confronted with that sin, that should, that should 
call us to something better, to, to repentance. But when that happens, when we see our sin and when we're uh, really confronted with the depths of depravity in our own hearts, then what happens? Then suddenly we start to identify with the man on the side of the road. The man who is helpless and in need, who is beaten up and stripped of everything in desperate need of rescue, that can be us too. That is our state spiritually. It says, as, as if Jesus was saying, what if this were you on the side of the road? What if, what if your only hope was this radical act of free grace that someone who owes you nothing at all had to give to you? And if you received that radical act of free grace, that would be enough to cause you to do the same for, for other people. And that's the good news. The, the, the gospel is that Jesus, Jesus acts towards us as the good Samaritan does towards the Jew. And so I don't know, know if that was what Jesus was, uh, m- you know, meaning to communicate necessarily through this parable, but the objective fact is that Christ showed us sacrificial, self-giving love on the cross. And that spiritually, we were dead, we were destitute, we were in darkness and in sin apart from the saving grace of God that pulls us out of that and into a, a life of joy and of light. He makes us from a dead tree to a living, fruitful tree. He owes us nothing. We are rebels against God, but he underwent great cost, his life, to provide us with great care at the Father's table because of his great compassion upon us. So to the degree that we identify spiritually with that broken and helpless man is the degree to which we are able to live out this mandate, to love your neighbor as yourself. The grace of God, should it should move us. It ought to compel us towards the love of of God and the love of those around us. This is what happens when we become a Christian. And we have to ask diagnostic questions. We have to ask if we, if we, if we see ourselves living less like this, what is the reason? We need to pray that God moves us more in that direction. That we suddenly become a tree that starts budding new leaves and growing and bearing fruit. Jonathan Parnell is a commentator who says this. This is a radical truth. In Christ, we are given a right standing before God, justification. We don't need to justify ourselves. God gives us justification, a right standing before God in Christ. And we are propelled in love for God and others by the new power of His Spirit in us. That's sanctification. His Spirit in us is is what allows us to, to carry this type of love out. This affects the way that we see those around us. It's not because they've become something different, but because we have. God's justifying work for us and transforming work in us commissions a path of good works prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is what Ephesians 2.10 says. And on this path are real people with real lives and real stories. And now when we encounter them, you know what they are? They're a divine call to us. They're an opportunity, a welcomed mandate for us to be who we are in Christ. What a beautiful way of flipping that and, and, and not seeing someone in need, a difficult situation, something that's going to require a lot from you as something that is going to drain you or harm you in some way, but as an opportunity, a welcomed mandate to become more of who you are in Christ. You see how perspective and approach is so important here? And that's what Jesus is pointing out with this lawyer. You've got the wrong perspective. You've got the wrong approach. And so please, let us 
Let us never be a church that is outdone by a world who loves people in its own name more than we love people in the name of Jesus Christ. We have to be aware of claiming to love God, love a God that we, we can't physically see, but then neglecting to love the people that we physically see with regularity. That's the, that's the priest. That's the Levite. And if this is really resonating with you, if you, if you are someone who reads this parable um, and you kind of think, how dare those religious leaders ignore that man? I can't stand people like that. They're what's wrong with the church. Well, then Jesus is speaking to you too. That's the si- that can be the same attitude, just kind of flipped on its head. It, you can, you can, did you know you can be self-righteous about not being so self-righteous? <laughs> we can't get away from sin on our own. That's the point. I read this book one time that called that type of attitude, I'm so self-righteous about not being self-righteous like that church over there, they call that being an accidental Pharisee. And that, that can be us too. Regardless of our prejudices, we are all in the same boat. We need grace. We've received grace in Jesus, and upon receiving that grace, we are called to love others regardless of who they are. And thankfully, gratefully, we have received the power of the Spirit that sanctifies us and propels us in that direction. We can do this. We can live and love people as as the Samaritan loved this poor man on the side of the road without, uh, without crushing us. In our weakness... His strength is made perfect, and He's the one who gives us strength by His Spirit. What matters is that we be loving neighbors, not call into question the judgment of others around us. So we should pray that God makes us a people who, because we have received the gospel, that God saved us undeserving sinners at great cost to Himself. Because of that, we are known as a people whose default is to have a loving movement towards other people. That should be our default posture. And I'm not saying that we, um, there's, there's, there's room in the Christian life for wisdom and for, for prudence and for limits and for saying, uh, saying no to certain things. I, I fully understand that. But we have to have a standard approach to people. And we ought to be a people whose standard, whose default is to, is to move towards others in love and then to make those calls after having that initial approach of moving towards someone in love. Does that make sense? This is how they'll know that we're Christians, by our love. And not just the love of the people who are like this or or the love of the people in this room. This is a a bit easier, but also the love of every image bearer of the God that we worship, no matter how different they are from us. And so let's pray for that now as a church. God, your word is always relevant. It is always sharp. It is always guiding. It is always illumining in our hearts areas where we need to change, but also the joy that awaits us when we follow you and walk in your presence, God. And so you have been clear with your church about many things, this being one of them, that you love us and that we are to love other people, God. I pray that you would make us more like Jesus in this aspect. God, that you would remind us of the promise that we have that nothing in this world can can crush us nothing in this world can can steal what you have given to us god and that we have a glorious inheritance waiting for us and that inheritance is worth uh casting everything else out in life so that we might love you and love other people with reckless not reckless um, but with relentless passion god you have
You have shown us that this is the way of joy and the way of life. And so may we walk in it as your people, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.